This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Rebecca Huntley here with you and a warm welcome to the History Listen. Today, the life story of Douglas Grant. Grant fought in World War I. He was a writer, a collector and a taxidermist. He was also an extraordinary Aboriginal man who survived a massacre of his people. Taken by a white couple, treated as a human experiment, his life made a case for Aboriginal assimilation. And just a warning that this program contains racist language, violence and historical ideas that are offensive. Today, Tom Murray tries to piece together the truth of the life of Douglas Grant. But in 1957, an ABC radio documentary began it this way. This is the story of a full-blooded Australian Aborigine who died at La Perouse in New South Wales in 1951. His story was so extraordinary, so unlikely to find any parallel in this country, that it could be described as a story without any meaning. Is this a story without any meaning? Or a story with an excess of meaning? We're in the rainforest of North Queensland, on what's now known as the Atherton Tablelands. This is the country where Douglas Grant was born around 1885. Mumunudgeon elder, Ernie Raymond, knows the skills needed to survive here. Our people were highly civilised people. To live in the rainforest, you have to be a very smart person. And you have to know the seasons and that. It's some of the thickest jungle you can imagine. Trees rise to great heights in the canopy, and on the ground, walking tracks connect the rainforest nations of the jungle. The Adinji, Jirabal, Najun, Mamu, and many more. Ernie Raymond describes the scene that Douglas Grant would have been born into 130 years ago. There would have been movement here, kids moving around. They had a man out hunting, and women folks were also hunting too as well. They were out, you know, the women folks with their yam stick. They would go out, go out and go along the riverbanks looking for tubers, like yam tubers or uh, black bean or uh, yellow walnut and the other one called uh, Jubla. But these were nuts that were uh, dropping to the floor of the rainforest. And so there would have been people moving around everywhere, everywhere around here, old granddad and all them lot. And at night, when they came back to their camp after they had a feed, the men would camp in their own ganyas, and the women folks and their children would stay in another ganya. And uh, probably the old people would have been singing there uh, late at night. Their songs would be mentioned about the hunting or how they got initiated. So things like that would have been happening. So there would have been a lot of movement in this area. But they were moving around in their own country. They never went into somebody else's country. You know, they respected that. We're in the year 1887. The summer monsoon rains have just started and some people from out of country are moving around. Fred Brown, a miner and store owner, was one of them. Suddenly one of the trackers stopped 
and we all stood still. Then, without saying a word, the two trackers went ahead. Returning in about an hour, they said that the tribe was making its camp for the night. To give them time to do this, we quietly sat down until just about dusk, and slowly and cautiously located ourselves round the camp. Instructions from the sergeant were to sit until we heard a shot which would be fired at daylight. What a night that was. At long last, the chachillas and other birds heralded morning, and a streak of light broke through the trees, and then a shot rang out, immediately followed by shrieks, yells, and screeches. There were shots and yells all round. Perhaps the method of dealing with the natives may be considered by those who know nothing of the trials of the pioneer somewhat drastic. Still, it was a matter of white or black ruling. In a few minutes, quietness reigned, and we all found our live number had increased by two gins who'd been captured by the trackers and a boy of about five or six years of age. That kiddie afterwards became Douglas Grant. That is the true story of Douglas Grant. Except it's not. As local historian Petrina Callahan found. Yeah, Fred Brown arrived around about 1889, a couple of years after Douglas Grant um, appears to have uh, gone south as a small child. So what Fred Brown recalled in 1933, nearly 40 years after the event, wasn't the massacre that orphaned Douglas Grant. It was another massacre in the same area just a few years later. This tells us two things. One, massacres were not unusual in this part of Queensland at the time. And settlers like Brown saw these massacres as a matter of white or black rule. They were necessary acts in a colonial war for control. And, as we'll hear, war has defined Douglas Grant's life. One of the reasons that Grant's story is so meaningful is because it draws together the two foundational wars of this country, the frontier war of colonial Australia and the story of Anzac that provides our mythic and preferred foundation narrative. But what really happened to Douglas Grant and his family in 1887? Mamul Najon Elder, Ernie Raymond, describes a frontier battle at a place called Gillen, nearby to the present-day town of Melanda. As a lot of miners came into this area, and that's when our people started, um, didn't like that. Anyway, the miners, you know, they used to come over to the pyramid here to have their beer and everything when they wanted it. But on the way over, they'd come across one of our camps over what we call a place called Gillen, and that's towards uh, Witches Creek. And the men were out hunting, and the miners saw no men folks there, so they um, started interfering with the woman. So what happened then, their, um, the men came back after hunting and they saw these white men interfering with their woman folks, so they speared a few and some of the white miners escaped to Pyramid and armed themselves and um, they shot people. 
This mass murder is probably what gave Butcher's Creek its name. It was um, a horrible sight, they reckon, you know, there were children and all shot. So that was a story that was told to me by Auntie Jessie Calico. But Ernie Raymond doesn't know if this was where Douglas Grant's family were killed. There's another recorded massacre nearby at Lake Eacham, and others unrecorded. I never hear our old people talking about uh, you know, a kid you know, survived the massacre. And so Russian people have, no, have not heard of it. But if they found him after that massacre, I would yell on them, he'd be automatically a Russian person. And um, if it happened over in uh, Pocket way, that's belonged to another tribal group called uh, Dolgabara Idinji people. Alec Chisholm was a journalist and author. In 1957, this is how he described the events. In the late 1880s, Robert Grant, a collector for the Australian Museum in Sydney and a dyed-in-the-wool Scot, was on the Atherton Tableland of North Queensland, together with his wife, collecting uh, birds and mammals for the Australian Museum. At that time, there'd been considerable trouble with the Aborigines due at basis to excesses on the part of certain white men in the area. And, uh, as was inevitable in those days, the black troopers, led by white troopers, exacted retribution from the uh, Aborigines of the area. This was in progress while Grant and his companion and his wife were in the area. And one day, Robert Grant saw a black trooper pick up a small boy by the ankles and uh, proceed to knock his brains out against a tree. Grant had seen so much of this that he couldn't tolerate any more and he, le he leveled his gun at the black trooper and ordered him to drap the boy. The trooper didn't understand the Scottish drap, but he did understand the gun and so he dropped the boy and ran. Ernie Raymond is sceptical. Stories have been exaggerated by everybody who can write, I reckon. You know, everybody got their own agenda. Dr Ernie Grant is a historian and durable elder from the rainforest country just south of where Douglas Grant was born. For some strange reason, there was always a little girl and a boy always saved. And you'll find it right across Australia in, 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 in Selectors account and pastoralists and that where they've done that kind of thing. A girl and a boy for some reason or other, whether they're trying to know that kind of thing, I don't know. And this is a feature of the stories of Douglas Grant. Truths are buried in myths. Old tales are recycled and adapted, and there's always the desire for a dramatic story. This is Heather Gorell and then June Madge, both descendants of the Grants, Douglas's adopted family, then Alec Chisholm again. Robert and Elizabeth were on a, an expedition in Queensland collecting specimens for the Australian Museum. And during that time, Robert Grant and his colleague uh, came across two Aboriginal children that had been um, left in the, in the bush and were wandering in the bush. And they found this little boy and girl in the trunk of a tree that uh, 
by what I heard about, there was a war between two tribes up there, and they were, these kids were, and the mother and father must have been killed or something, and uh, they come across these little boy and little girl. Histories of Douglas Grant often say he was rescued from a native disturbance. Was, uh, native disturbance. disturbance. Reprisal. One tribe attacking Found in the Queensland bush. Or, as the Australian Dictionary of Biography puts it, a tribal fight. Most newspapers published in the early 1900s called it a tribal disturbance. Words are important here because they serve to disguise what really happened. Historian Anne Kerthoys and then Ernie Grant in Queensland, you have the native police. So they're the agents of white society. They're, they're the mode of settling. But they are Aboriginal people from a long way away, um, which I think trickles down in settler consciousness as intertribal violence, when what it really is is frontier conflict, which is using native police as the sort of frontline forces for white settlement. With the native police, in, in every other force, the commander always rode in front. In the native police, they always rode at the back. So you can see that they thought it out pretty well. And so to Douglas Grant. This is Petrina Callahan, then Alec Chisholm and June Madge. From what we are led to believe, Mrs Grant had indicated earlier that she'd like to take a little black boy, were her words, back, to, back home with her, back to uh, New South Wales. Grant rescued the youngster, took him to his camp, Mrs Grant washed him, and they cared for him. They were full of ticks when they pulled them out, like, you know, and they had to get the ticks out of them, and, uh, and then they took them to the hut. The Ball Pocket Hotel, or Shanty, was known more as. Until uh, nightfall, put them to bed that night and the next night when they got up the next morning uh, they weren't in their bed. At which time his sister, aged I suppose at that time about ten, sneaked into the camp and took the boy away. Grant and his uh, companion tracked the children afterwards and found the girl sitting alongside a hollow log with little Douglas who at that time, I suppose, was aged two or three, tucked into the hollow log. Well, my response to that recording is, I think, uh, personally, if that was written by an uh, indigenous person, it w wouldn't be totally different, you know, because that would outline what tribal group he belongs to, plus he would have known the landscape that he was in, and uh, it also, you know, it seems far-fetched to me. I don't like using that word, I'm afraid I'm just, you know, to me it is because it's written by one family only and nobody else. The Grants, it's their story. And like a lot of stories up here in the far north, you know, to a lot of us Aboriginal people, that's his word and they're going by it. Personally, I think the Grants jumped the gun there, you know. So, you know, it comes back to the sister. And plus, they should have gone to the local police officer. He was the protector. He would have known what was good for the, you know, and probably would have had him sent to a mission station 
at least on a mission station, he would have been looked after and, and he'd be amongst Aboriginal people. And there he probably would have met some of these um, people who are far distant related to them, you know. It was the Grant's uh, fault, really. You know, okay, they meant well, but at the end of the day, what they did was completely wrong. It was also illegal to take an Indigenous child across state borders. In order to get him out of Queensland, she having decided to adopt the child, she wrapped him up in a shawl and made it appear, for the sake of uh, officialdom, that she was carrying her own baby. And so little Douglas was safely brought to Sydney. While the Grant family clearly loved him, for people who came to hear of his story, the experiment of Douglas Grant begins here. Could an Aboriginal boy taken out of his traditional life survive or prosper in civilised society? If this experiment could prove that nurture was more important than nature, then Aboriginal assimilation was possible. Nobody at the time, and few today, imagine it could work the other way, that white Australians could assimilate into Aboriginal culture. This is Alec Chisholm again. He was put to school subsequently, and he grew up into uh, a very decent and likeable little boy. One of his characteristics, as perhaps was inevitable, was that he acquired the Scottish uh, dialect of his foster father and uh, his foster grandfather. Historian Anne Curthoys. And that just doesn't ring true to me. He was brought up in Sydney and most people don't speak really with the accent of their parents. They speak with the accent of their peers and their, who they went to school with and who's down the street. It just doesn't ring true. And it does lead to this question of performance, that he's speaking in that accent in certain situations to perform a Scottish identity. Um, and having dark skin and performing Scottishness is obviously intriguing for people. And he presumably realises that and, and plays with that. He played football, he learned to think the same as other European children in the school and there was absolutely no differentiation because being so young and all his formative years uh, built him into, well, nothing more nor less than a normal European. Well, I think he used to help his brother do the homework, didn't he? Yes. He's uh, uh, foster brother, of course. And this is Miss Tarleton, another cousin at Lithgow. He seemed to be able to learn quicker than what the white person did. Douglas's family saw him as an Aboriginal person fully assimilated into a European way of life. He excelled in it, they said. He graduated from school, held a job at Maud Stock as a draftsman, and was a minor celebrity and a curiosity at the Australian Museum. It was here that he may have met Archduke Franz Ferdinand in 1893 and a German anthropologist, Professor Hermann Klatsch, in 1905. In different ways, both of these men would radically change Douglas's life. The assassination of the Archduke in 1914 sparked the First World War, but his chance meeting with the German professor might just have saved his life. When Douglas enlisted to fight in World War I, 
his story drew national press coverage. The following account is from the Sydney Mail in May 1916. There is probably only one Aboriginal in Australia who holds the rank of Sergeant in the King's Forces, Douglas Grant, the adopted son of Mr Robert Grant of the Australian Museum, Sydney. As soon as he was old enough, he was sent to the public school. On reaching early manhood, he was a general favourite because of his fine disposition, which is characterised as white to a fault. But there was to be a fault in his whiteness. This is Tony Griffiths, who has spent the last few years researching the life of Douglas Grant. A significant thing was about to happen to him in 1916. Douglas went back to Sydney the day before the first ever Anzac commemoration. Now, when Douglas got back to Sydney to rejoin his regiment, he would have startled quite a few people. To see an Aboriginal man, a sergeant, with authority over white men, that would have shocked a great many people. Strictly speaking, he should not have been in the army because government law forbade it at that time. That was a huge day in Australia, that first Anzac Day. Probably the most emotional day the nation had ever had. You know, there were so many crippled soldiers around and people mourning their losses. And here was this Aboriginal man with authority over white men. I, I think that was a tragic day for Douglas Grant. Yeah. We don't know exactly what happened between the fateful Anzac Day Parade when Douglas would have marched as a sergeant along the streets of Sydney and the embarkation of his 34th Regiment a week later. But this is the story as June Madge heard it. I was on the boat to go uh, overseas and they got to the head and they stopped the boat. And uh, they took Uncle Doug off because they said there was no uh, Aboriginals allowed to go to the war. And they and the boys from the birth more or less put on a bit of a riot, you know, you know, at least trained and everything like that. It's a dramatic story, but Grant was not on the boat. Tony Griffiths has examined the records for May 1916. His military records say that when the 34th Regiment sailed on the 2nd, uh, Douglas was not with them. But the records also say that by the 6th he was a member of the 13th Battalion and he was no longer a sergeant. Being stripped of his rank was one of a number of indignities that Douglas faced as a soldier. But humour was his defence against discrimination. Tom Iredale remembers this story from a training camp just before he shipped to war. When he was in camp at Liverpool, he uh, got in uh, correspondence with some girls who were writing. And so he wrote this beautiful thing, you know, and signed Douglas Grant. And they made an appointment, and uh, he said to the, he wrote to the girl to bring another girl along, and he'd bring a pal, you see. So they arrived up there, and the two girls were waiting at the rendezvous, supposed to be Randwick tramway stop, you see. And so he told his pal to go along and see, and they said, oh yes, there's the two girls there dancing. So Douglas walked up to them, and walked up to the girl, and he said, do you so-and-so? Uh, yes, he said, well, I'm Douglas Grant. And he says, she just took one look and vanished. He said, I think she's still running. 
Grant sailed with the 13th Battalion in August 1916. He trained in England and France and fought on the Western Front, where he was wounded and captured at the Battle of Bullecourt on April 11, 1917. Harry Adams explained their situation as prisoners of war. We'd been there for about three or four months. We weren't getting very much food. As a matter of fact, the, uh, the daily ration was one slice of bread and uh, a plate of very poor vegetable soup. Uh, naturally, we got thinner and thinner. Doug was no exception. So Doug, with others, used to go sick with the idea of getting the doctor to declare them unfit for further laborious work around the front. And uh, on this particular occasion, the doctor, when examined him, said, you don't look sick. Doug said, what have I got to do, turn white? He said, before you can tell whether I'm sick or not. But Douglas was about to be in luck. German scientists had realised that the war brought opportunities for study. And being a black man, he became an object of their interest. By chance, he recognised an anthropologist, a colleague of Professor Clarch, who'd visited the Australian Museum. Douglas looked at this man and he said to himself, I've seen you before somewhere, I think that you're Dr So-and-so, who once visited the Australian Museum. Becoming convinced on that point, he went up to this man and he threw him salute. And this uh, German scientist gazed in amazement at the black fellow, supposedly one of the colonial troops that the Germans were talking about in those days. This encounter may have saved his life. He was sent to a POW camp just outside Berlin. It was half science laboratory and half colonial propaganda camp. It was designed to encourage jihad among Muslim soldiers returning to the Allied colonies so they would rise up against their colonial masters. The state even funded Germany's first ever mosque to prove their credentials. As for science, thousands of men from all over the British, Russian and French empires were studied as part of a project meant to prove just how evolved Germans were. And many of these ideas would be adopted by the National Socialists just a few years later. Roy Kinghorn, a friend of Douglas Grant's from the Australian Museum, recalled what Douglas told him about it. He was photographed and his skull was measured. As a matter of fact, some of the things he told me uh, wouldn't bear going on the air, but uh, he, he was measured all over and upside down and inside out. And <laughs> taking it all around, he, he, he was the prize piece, the prize capture. <laughs> The camp scientists recorded the songs and voices of troops from all over the world, like these Pacific Islanders singing of their homeland. When I went to Berlin to research this story, I hoped to hear the voice of Douglas Grant in the archives, but unfortunately, I found no recording. Leonard Adam was an anthropologist in the camp. This was recorded in 1957. Grant was not a very useful object for this sort of research in that he had been removed from his tribal surroundings at a very early age, in fact as a baby. 
grand passamen of superior intelligence to the majority of them. And for this reason, they appointed him uh, a sort of trustee who had to look after the very valuable parcels that arrived from the British Prisoners of War Fund in London for the prisoners. He lobbied on behalf of hundreds of men and was responsible for their welfare. Halbmund Lager, Wunstorf Sossen, 22nd February 1918. Dear Sir, some time ago you had the kindness to send us two tins of curry powder, which is quite indispensable to the Indians. At the same time, we would ask whether you would supply us English books and literature of any kind for our camp occupants who can read English, the Australians, Africans, etc. Thanking you kindly in anticipation, we remain on behalf of the British Help Committee, yours truly, Douglas Grant, Abdul Mota Zera. For many commentators, this was the crowning moment of Grant's life. Tony Griffiths. I, I think the highest point of his life was when he was in the, uh, the German POW camp in Zossen, when he took over running the committee that looked after the other inmates. All of his talents were relevant there. His colour was irrelevant. And perhaps it was. But in photos taken in the camp, he doesn't look happy. He looks like a man missing home. Still, what can one one-fiftieth of a second say about a life? To the Australian Red Cross Society, London. Dear Miss Chomley, could I also get a copy, each in book form, the poems of Adam Lindsay Gordon, Henry Lawson and Robert Louis Stevenson, or some books of Australian life? Something in which to pass away a few leisure moments which are generally filled with that longing of home sweet home and to read of it in prose, verse or story would help to overcome that longing. Perhaps, madam, you are not aware that I am a native of Australia, adopted in infancy and educated by my foster parents whose honoured name I bear. They imbued me with the feelings and spirit of love, of home, honour and patriotism. Yours faithfully, Douglas Grant. Millions died in World War I, including 62,000 Australian men, a death toll roughly equivalent to Queensland's colonial frontier wars. Douglas Grant survived both of these devastating conflicts. After the war, he was repatriated to England. He went AWOL for a week to visit his Scottish relatives. This is Tom Iredale. Well, he was going to see his father's place. He never called anything else. He was going to see his father's place in the south of Scotland. And when they arrived in the village, they were pretty hungry and dry. They spotted a little uh, store. So Douglas walked in and in his best scotch, says, how's our way, you lassie? The girl stood back at this scotch, purely scotch accent coming out of her black face. Where, where do you come from? Oh, I'm from Australia. But you're scotch. Oh, aye, says, I just, it's a hot country. So she ran through, mither, mither, come out quickly. Here's a poor Scotty back from Australia and he's burned black. 
1919, he returned to Australia and back to his old job, Tony Griffiths. Uh, initially, he went back to work at uh, Mort's and he was there until, I think, the end of 1921 uh, when he came back to Lithgow and he got a job at the Lithgow Small Arms Factory. About the time Douglas got there, the workforce numbers were decreasing. Douglas was laid off on one or two occasions, but the local RSL exerted a bit of local pressure and got him put back on. He was there on and off, I think, until uh, March 1925. But in most accounts, this is where tragedy starts to define the story. This is John Thompson in 1957. What went wrong, though, after he came back home? Douglas's father, Robert, died in 1923, which must have been a blow. For June Madge, though, the reason was a girl. He met this girl who was very keen on her, and he was very, getting a bit serious, and the girl's parents said, get rid of him, we don't want a dark any dark grandkids or anything like that. So he, uh, he took to the drink after that, more or less. These women can cause trouble at times. Clearly, discrimination was a big part of the story. June Madge remembers an incident at a pub just after the war. They got into this hotel and Doug went with them. And uh, this German fella went up to the police and complained about an Aboriginal drinking in the pub. And the policeman had to come down and do his duties and he said he's sorry, but he said I'll take him out of here. He's not allowed in there. Mum was very bitter over that. Despite the constant racism, Douglas continued to give speeches to various organisations and engage in his own forms of political activism. Well, Doug, in his little bit of wit, he said to the taxation chap that came along to see him, and Doug said, well, he says, as far as paying, he said, I've got no intention to paying it. Well, he said, you know what we can do with, we can force you to pay it. Well, Doug said, I might take a hand in that and cause the government, he says, to force to pay me. He says, it's my country. And he says, uh, I think, he says, it's pretty hard for you to turn around and ask me to live in my country and pay to live in it. And he says, I don't think he says, I'm going to pay it. Well, he says, you're putting it that way. He says, making it a bit awkward for me. But he says, I'll report it. Well, Doug never heard no more and he didn't pay tax. He used to refuse. He said he wouldn't pay it. During the 1920s, he travelled widely and collected natural history for a number of museums. He was also a fixture at the Australian Museum, where his younger foster brother Henry was head taxidermist. Uh, Douglas Grant used to sing at our museum smokos. We have a little informal affair every year for the staff, and he used to come along with his white brother and sing Scottish songs. Of course, with Robert Grant as a father, he could sing these songs with the correct Scottish accents, and uh, he was a great success, very popular with us all. Douglas wrote opinion pieces for newspapers, and after the 1928 massacre of Aboriginal people at Coniston, he wrote a scathing attack on government Aboriginal policy for a major newspaper. The Sunday Pictorial, February 1929. 
A Call for Justice by Douglas Grant. What can we do and what are we doing for the first inhabitants, the rightful owners of this land which was usurped and portioned as your heritage? The outcome of war and bloodshed. The government has to awaken and take measures to ensure the lives of the remnants of Australia's original inhabitants. This is not asking too much. It lies at the footstool of the government. This great unparalleled crime. If they call for justice, they are answered with the lash or the gun. But it's the closing plea that gets to me the most with Douglas's rethink of the racial science of the day, part of his rationale for stopping the violence of the frontier. Also, if scientific research can fathom to the depth the origin of the much-discussed lowest order of the human race of mankind, the Australian Aboriginal, the original inhabitants may be found to be the cradle of the world's people of the present day. Well, that was Doug's outlook, and unfortunate in a sense because he never associated himself with his own race. Through his associations, right from childhood, he couldn't tolerate his own people. He considered them something very, very different, and that's why the experiment of bringing up Doug as he was brought up and educating him as he was educated was rather a tragic experiment because he was an isolated case. Was he very conscious of being uh, non-white, Miss Towson? Really? He used to um, wash his hands and he'd come in and he'd say, Ma, he said, I think they're getting whiter. And he'd look at the front of his palms and he'd think his hands was getting whiter. What's the brand that everyone demands? It's nigger boy, nigger boy, nigger boy. And what's the gentlest cleaner on your hands? Why, nigger boy? Nigger boy, nigger boy. Was he at all conscious of the fact that they weren't white? Did he want them to be white? Oh, I think he did when he was young. We've got the idea from something that somebody else told us that uh, the fact that he wasn't white in later life really did be was part of the, the difficulty that he had. Oh, I think it was to a certain extent. That was really his tragedy. Doug pretended that he didn't mind. He was always telling jokes against himself, always the same joke in a different form. It was always a joke about his skin colour. Douglas failed to win an architect's job, designing houses for the Aboriginal community at La Perouse. He also faced other setbacks. Brian Hungerford. He told Mr Harry Adams that his colour prevented him from getting permanent work. At one time he had hopes of a museum job at Canberra, but in this he was disappointed. He was drinking heavily and in 1931 he was arrested by police. He was um, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney, I think it was, and he was threatening passers-by with a razor. He was suffering delusions. He kept saying, they're out to get me, people are looking for me, they're going to get me, they're going to kill me. And they said he just had to go into Callum Park, into the military section of Callum Park. And so he was transferred there, and there are documents in his uh, Callum Park file that back all that up. The patient is so persecuted by delusions of fear that he cannot carry on normal life. He says, voices follow me through the city 
and repeat. We've got you. We've got you. We've got you. They're ignorant. We've got you. We've got, no got you. No good. Well, they should be down the I'm doing wrong all the time. Weakest water. Set. Set. And they follow me. Pretty low when they're in the lane. I'm defending myself. Shakes and pain. They're on the county. The voices they follow me through the city and they keep repeating. I'm reminded here of the psychiatrist, R.D. Lang, who believed that insanity is a perfectly rational adjustment to an insane world. If Douglas Grant's life had been one long publicly discussed experiment, the newspapers were quick to print their results and conclusions just a few days after he entered Callan Park Hospital for the Insane, the Sydney newspaper, Smith's Weekly, penned his obituary under these headlines. The end of a human experiment. Bitter tragedy of Douglas Grant. Black of body, but white of heart. Douglas Grant would live another 20 years until 1951. But Smith's Weekly had this to say. Farewell to Douglas Grant for Douglas Grant represents Australia's greatest contributor to the science of anthropology. He is the focus of the most human scientific episode in Australian history, the living embodiment of an attempt to blend humanity today with humanity as it was in the beginning. And now this experiment of the ages has failed. The brain of Douglas Grant, Aboriginal waif who became cultured, has weakened under the strain imposed by civilization, and a few days ago kindly hands took him to a state home, a repetition in a way of his rescue as a baby nearly 50 years ago from a massacre in the wilds of North Queensland. But Grant was not dead. He lived another 20 years, working in Sydney and at the Lithgow Small Arms Factory. He had a regular radio show and often spent extended holidays with friends and family. During the 1940s, Douglas lived with the Hoburn family in DY. This is Andrew Hoburn talking about good times with Douglas. They treat him like a lord and he was always so, if he said bugger or something like that, he'd put up these hands and say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he, you know, he's so, such a thorough gentleman. Dad had a, an old uh, Dodge, 28 Dodge. Doug used to like to go for rides, and then, mm -hmm. then I'd, I'd drive up while Dad and Doug went and have a couple of beers, come back in. Yeah. I loved him a lot. Yeah, a lot of mem good memories of Doug. It's clear that there were people around Douglas who cared about him, but his relationship with Australia, and with Anzac, was more problematic. Roy Kinghorn, one of his fellow Anzacs met him shortly before he died. Going into the domain for an Anzac service on this particular day, I saw Douglas standing very dejectedly under a tree as we were all marching in, and there he was just with the crowd. So I left the boys and I went across and I said, come on, Douglas, hop in. Oh, no, he said, no, I'm not wanted anymore. I said, oh, yes, you are. It's in a day like this, Douglas, everybody wants you. Come on, hop in with the boys. Oh, I think I'm better out here, he'd say. I think I'm better out here. I live my part. I don't belong. I don't belong. I, I've, I've lived long, long enough to see that I don't belong anywhere and they don't want me. 
look, I said, am I going to pull you under the rails or you're coming under the rails? So he took my hand and came under the rails and he eventually found his group and uh, probably had a very good day with them. That unfortunately was the last time I saw Douglas. I don't know what happened to him for a couple of years, but I do know that just uh, perhaps four or five years ago, we heard that he had died. Douglas died at the war veterans' home at La Perouse in 1951. A few years later, John Thompson and Brian Hungerford tried to make sense of the story. That is the story, or some part of the story, of Douglas Grant, who was known as the Black Scotsman. His story was so extraordinary, so unlikely to find any parallel in this country, that it could be described as a story without any meaning. It does mean one thing, though. It means that if you take a newborn baby straight from its mother, you can bring it up to fit into any society at any level. There's no inherent mental or emotional difference between the primitive man and the civilised one. Fair enough. That's what the story of Douglas Grant means, if it means anything at all. It's not a story that we have much cause to be proud of. A good brain was wasted, a useful citizen was frustrated. But it may be that a time is approaching when the real talents of the Australian Aborigines will be given their proper opportunity in a wise, constructive way. And now, another half-century on, the story reveals new ideas about race, resilience, and our colonial wars. Douglas Grant lived all of this. He was a man who spoke to, and was punished by, the great Australian whisperings and silences that we're still struggling to reconcile. In 50 years, Australia will be another country and the world a different place. And there'll be new meanings in this story. Rest in peace, Douglas Grant. You've done your part. The Skin of Others was produced by Tom Murray with sound design by Judy Rapley. The supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. And this program was one of the finalists in this year's Premier's History Awards. If you'd like to see photos of Douglas Grant and other information about the program, head to the History Listen page on the RN website. I'm Rebecca Huntley. Thanks for your company. Thank you.